Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Uh, Donald Regan, who was a graduate of the class of the Harvard class of 1940, um, spent most of his career at Merrill Lynch, and then was Secretary Treasurer, Secretary of the Treasury from 1981 to 1985, and then White House Chief of Staff from 1985 to 1987. Uh, left a gift to Harvard University to invite distinguished speakers to present their views in the fields of economics, government, and social problems of the United States and the world to undergraduates at Harvard College. I've been thinking all afternoon what one of, were he alive today, what one of the leading proponents of Reaganomics uh, would think of the economic policies uh, of China over the last 70 years. Right. I'm sure the two of you would have a lot to say about Sheikonomics. Right. Uh, the, the, well, well, I suspect that uh, Donald Reagan and, and our distinguished guest today might not have agreed about a lot of things. I am also sure that uh, Donald Reagan, uh, in whose honor we're gathered today, would have heartily approved of our choice of a speaker, uh, using the funds to uh, invite a truly distinguished speaker uh, who will speak to you and can speak to us about economics, about government, and about social problems uh, of the world and of the United States. Uh, Justin Lin, Lin Yifu, is Dean of the Institute of New Structural Economics and Dean of the Institute of South-South China Cooperation and Development and Professor at, at the National School of Development at Peking University at Beida. He's a graduate of Beida uh, and also received a PhD in economics from the University of Chicago in 1986. Uh, for more than a decade, he served as founding director and professor of the China Center for Economic Research at Beida. It was in that capacity in 2004 that Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Uh, from 2008 to 2012, he served as uh, a senior vice president and chief economist of the World Bank. Uh, he holds today, in addition to his many uh, uh, academic titles, and I, and I actually established just now that he is actually more diligent about attending class than I am. Uh, those of you who go to school in China know that the rules are very strict uh, about professors missing classes. And so in addition to all of his other roles, uh, Professor Lin continues to teach undergraduates every week. He's also a counselor of the state council and a member of the standing committee of the Chinese people the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. And I really wonder, during Lianghui, you actually have to teach? Yeah, I, yeah. Okay, that's very, that's very impressive. That's he's, the, he's the author of more than 20 books, including Beating the Odds, Jumpstarting Developing Countries, The Quest for Pro Prosperity, How Developing Economies Can Take Off, and Demystifying the Chinese Economy. Uh, Professor Lin has spent a very busy couple of days working with uh, our undergrads in the Econ Department, in the Gov Department, and with uh, several of the student organizations uh, with whom we have co-sponsored this event. I want to just take a moment to thank the Harvard College China Forum, the International Relations on Campus Group, and the Harvard College Association for U.S.-China Relations. Uh, they've been extremely helpful uh, in, in working with us to put these, these events together, and I think uh, 
uh, my sense is that the students have benefited deeply and been, been very, very grateful for the, the, the time that you've taken uh, with them. Um, you will see that, uh, that uh, and those of you who have heard him and know his work know that uh, Professor Lin uh, is fairly confident about the Chinese economy. Um, most, 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 most recently, of course, uh, he made uh, a two million US dollar bet uh, on the long-term future of the, U of the China economy with respect to the US economy uh, with our former colleague, Neil Ferguson. Um, we will be watching that bet with interest over the next 20 years. Um, I, should, I should warn the undergrads here, you are absolutely under, so ordinarily when you make a bet that big, you hedge, right? Um, no undergrads may uh, engage in side betting with Professor Lin as part of this, as part of this visit. But we'll, we'll look forward to, to hearing why you made the right call uh, and Neil the wrong call. Uh, we're so pleased, we're so honored to have you here. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, please join me in welcoming Justin and you. Well, the Fairbank Centers is the mecca of China studies. And I'm honored to be invited to give a talk at the centers, and also at a very important time for China. Because this is the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic, and also a very critical time for the world because the rise of China challenges the dominance of the US. And on this backdrop, I'd like to have a reflection about the development in the past 70 years in China and our call for, we need to have a revolution in modern economics. If you want to make modern economics to be a framework for understanding China and also for the developing world. 70 years ago, China was one of the poorest country in the world. And certainly the founding of the People's Republic of China was for the national rejuvenation. And what do we mean by national rejuvenation was industrialization and modernization. And basically we can divide it, the past 70 years, into two periods. The first period was from 1949 to 1978. And as you know, in that period, China was a typical planning economy. And the second period, from end of 1978 to now, China transit from a planning economy to a market economy. And during the planning economy period, the goal, as I mentioned, was industrialization, modernization. And China set up a specific goal that was to overtake Britain in 15 years to catch up the US uh, to overtake the Britain in 10 years and to catch up the US in 15 years. 
by the development of large-scale modern industry and so on. And the guiding principle for policy at that time was Marxism and a political economy that published by subunion. And at that time, China did not have much context with the West. However, if we think carefully, the policy principle in China was very similar to the main ideas in the West. Because we know after the 1930s, the macroeconomics, the idea was Keynesianism, which stressed the government intervention to overcome market values. And as the development economics emerged after the Second World War, was so-called structuralism and advising the developing country to adopt the import substitution strategies and use the government and you know, mobilization of resources to develop modern industries. And that was very similar to what China practiced at that time. The advantage of this kind of approach, allowing a low-income agrarian economy to transform quickly. So China was able to set up a whole set of modern industries and that allowed China to be able to test nuclear bombs in the 1960s, to launch the satellite in the 1970s, and allow China to have independent military capacity to defend its own borders. But the drawback, the drawback was it's extremely inefficient. So in spite of all those modern industries, by the end of 1978, 81% of the population still live in the countryside. And 84% of the population live below international poverty line of a dollar a day because of low efficiency. And uh, other socialist countries practice the similar strategies. Other developing countries in Latin America, in Africa, adopt those kind of government-led import substitution strategies. They have similar situation. They were able to build up some modern energy like steel mill, car factory, and so on. But they were all very inefficient. And China was the first country in a socialist camp, and to some extent also in the developing world, to transit from the government-led development model to the market economies. And uh, other socialist countries followed in the 1980s and 1990s. In fact, all the developing countries in the 1980s and the 1990s were, uh, on, all were on the transition from the government-led economic model to market economy. 
and the mainstream ideas in the West at the time changed. The Keynesianism was replaced by the Chicago Russian expectation in the macroeconomics, which emphasized the government values, which said any kind of government interventions was wrong, and we should allow market to function. And also the development ideals of structuralism was replaced by neoliberalism, which also argued the reason why in the developing country or in a socialist country, they could not perform well because they have too many government interventions, too many government values. And if they want to improve their economic performance, they should you know, move to the market economy and they should remove, eliminate all the government interventions and set up the necessary fundamental market institutions by the so-called marketization, liberalize all the prices, and prices should be set up by the market, and privatization, because before the transition, no matter it was in socialist country like China, or a non-socialist country which adopted imposition, they all had a lot of state-owned prices and the government subsidized those kind of stimulus prices. So they argue for privatization. But at the same time, they argue to make a policy, uh, to make a prices function well, you need to have a stability in the economy. And so they call for stabilization. By that, they need to keep their government budget you know, balanced in order to reduce the government deficit and the money supply in order to stabilize the economy. They also argue those kind of reforms that we call the Washington Consensus should be implemented simultaneously with a Big Bang approach or structural therapy approach. At that time, China opened the door, started to have a lot of context with the Western you know, society, communities. China invited a lot of you know, masters of economics to reach China to give policy advice. China also introduced modern economics into the curriculum in the universities. However, China did not follow the policy recommendation from the mainstream ideas that was Washington consensus, marketization, privatization, and stabilization. China adopted a piecemeal, gradual, dual-track approach. In that approach, China continued to provide transitory protection and subsidies to all state-owned sectors. They maintain to be state-owned, and they continue to receive subsidies and protection from the state. But China also liberalized the entry to the new sectors, labor intensive, and they used to be repressed in the older regime. And the government liberalized the entry, but also actively facilitate their growth by setting up 
spatial economic zone, expropriation zone, by active investment promotion to invite the investment from you know, neighboring economies like Taiwan, Hong Kong, or Korea, and then also other you know, more advanced countries. And this approach in the 1980s, 1990s, was considered as the worst possible approach. You know, that Larry Summers wrote an article in 1992, when he was the chief economist of the World Bank, he said, well, in the past, we often have a joke. If you raise one question to five economists, they give you six answers. And each answer seems to be so logic and so convincing. So none of them can convince the other people, right? But he said, this time, for the transition, there was a consensus. There's a consensus. That was the marketization, privatization, stabilization need to be implemented simultaneously. That was one consensus. The other one was one article published by Schleifer and Murphy, and they argued those kind of piecemeal dual track approach was worst possible approach. <laughs> And they argue those kind of approach will make the economy even worse than a planning economy. Because if you allow state continue to set up the prices to allocate resources in a parallel to the markets, then you are going to cause more ransacking, more resource and you know, misallocation and so on. What considered as the worst possible approach. And China, at the time, adopted those gradual dual track approach was considered as worst possible. And certainly, the reason why they thought those kind of piecemeal gradual approach was the worst, on the one hand, because of rent and rent seeking, on the other hand, misallocation of resources. And you did see that in the 1980s, 1990s, you see a lot of rent-seeking activity emerge in China and causing income disparity, corruption issues. However, those countries follow the structure up. They also encounter similar corruption, misallocation of resources. But there's one thing different. Although that approach was considered as a worse approach, China maintained stability and dynamic economic growth. And the other country which follow the right approach, their economy collapsed, stagnant, hit by crisis all the time. And uh, the trouble that China had, that was corruption and a misallocation of resources, also exists in those countries which follow the right approach. And so, as an economist, we need to reflect. Those modern economic theories seem to be so convincing. For example, in the 1950s, 1960s, the structuralism seemed to be very convincing. 
if you want to catch up the high-income country, you would need to have the high-income as the high-income country. That's your goal, right? And if you want to have similar income level, you would have to have similar labor productivities. But if you wanted to have a similar labor productivity, certainly you need to own or you know, develop the industries which are similar you know, in the similar advanced level. Shouldn't be very convincing. But if you practice that, how come even you were able to build up those kind of industry, but they could not function well. They all became certain kind of white elephant. And so you have certain kind of you know, ex-efficiency as you know, described by Professor Lebenstein of Harvard University. I think the main reason was at that time, the development economist failed to recognize Industrial structure is endogenous because for the developing country after the Second World War, there were poor agrarian economies. And the capital was extremely scarce. But those kind of modern, large-scale capital-intensive industry were not their competitive advantages. If they were not their competitive advantages, in open competitive market, they could not be viable without protection and subsidies. And so the structuralism, which emphasizes the market value to argue well, in a market economy, you cannot build up those kind of modern industries. It was not because of the structuralism as they argue in a developing country. It was because those kind of industries were not viable, but they did not recognize that. And as a result, they recommend to build up those kind of modern industry with the support of the government is something you the Chinese verb, Chinese word, So certainly, although with the government support, you can set up them, but they cannot function well. And at that period of time, there were a few successful economies in Eastern Asia, like Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore. They did not follow the mainstream ideas to build up large-scale mining industry at the beginning. They started with small-scale, labor-intensive, a uh, 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 labor, small-scale labor-intensive manufacturing. And they did not practice the import substitution. They followed some kind of export promotion. And those kind of strategies in the 1950s, 1960s, according to the mainstream idea, was the wrong strategies. The argument was, if the high-income country did develop, the large-scale money industries, their labor productivity was so high, and you develop those kind of small-scale traditional labor-intensive industry, and labor productivity was so low. How can you catch up? But now, ironically, those few economies performed well, became newly industrialized, and catch up the high-income country. They all practice the wrong strategy from the mainstream idea at the time.
And in the transition of 1980 and the 1990s and now, how come those kind of Washington consensus arguments seem to be so convincing and so people as smart as Larry Summers said? It was a consensus among economic communities, but you failed. I think the main reason was because they did not recognize the distortion themselves were also endogenous to the need to protect those kind of industry in the priority sectors. Because they are capital intensive, they went against their competitive advantages. And uh, if you would not give them protection and subsidies, remove them, they're all bankrupt. As a result, you are going to huge unemployment surge up, and with that, you cannot have social political stability. And not only so, many of those large-scale capital intensive industry, some of them related to economic infrastructure, like telecommunication, like a power supply. And if you are writing to go bankrupt, you cannot have a normal economic operation at all. And so you need to continue to subsidize them or to protect them. And others, some of them, some of them are related to national defense. They are capital intensive, but they are needed for the production of military equipment for the national defense. And uh, if you allow them to go bankrupt, like in Ukraine, then you will not have any ability to defend yourself. So for those two reasons, even after the privatization, the government would need to continue provide subsidies and protection to all those kind of you know, old capital intensive industry. And in the 1990s, I wrote some articles to argue with Jeffrey Sachs and many others. Because at that time, the idea of you know, protection and subsidies, and also the sub-budget constraint to the state-owned enterprises was because they are owned by the state. But my argument, the reason why subsidy and protection was necessary because they were in sectors which are strategically important for the nation. And, and, uh, and with that kind of you know, strategic uh, purpose, it became some kind of partial burden to the firm. And if you have a policy burden, certainly you are going to have policy-induced losses. Who should be responsible for the policy-induced losses? The state. And I argue, under the state ownership, the subsidy and protection will be smaller than under the privatization, private ownership. Because if those kind of sectors are owned by the state, the manager are state employees. They will come to the state to say, without protection subsidies, we cannot survive. And the government could not refuse to give them subsidy and protection. And after receive the policy, the, the policy protection and subsidies, it's very hard to prevent the on-the-job consumption. But if they want to put the money into their own pockets, it's a crime, it's a corruption. And they're subject to punishment. But if they are owned by the private sectors, they will use the same excuse to argue for protection and subsidies. 
And the more they get, the more they can put into their own pocket. <coughs> it's illegal. So the private sector will have a higher incentive to have the rent-seeking. And when they come to argue for their protection and subsidies, they will tell the government officials, your salary is so low. And why not give me more subsidy and protection? And anyhow, those are not your money. They're the money owned by the state. But if you give me more money, I'll open a Swiss account, bank account for you, and we can split those kind of subsidy and protection. I argue that theoretically in the early 1990s. And now there are so many empirical evidence to support my argument. Recently, I'm sure you heard of the Panama Papers, right? And full of evidence, stories like that. And that was the reason why that after the Washington Consensus, actually the performance deteriorated and the corruption and subsidies were even higher than the corruption and subsidies in China and in a few countries adopt this kind of gradual approach. And how come the Chinese approach at the beginning was sought as the worst possible institution arrangement? And now, you know, purchase the object. Because the dual check approach continue to provide subsidy and protection to the firm still in the state ownership. Allow the government to discipline them, and certainly the subsidy and protection maintain the stability. Then the liberalization to enter into the new sector which are consistent with China's comparative advantages, and with the government's active facilitation. They grow very fast. And so China can achieve stability and dynamic economic and growth simultaneously. And this dynamic economic growth also created conditions for China to reform the old sectors. The main reason subsidies and protection for the old sectors were necessary because at that time, those kind of sectors were kept intensive. When again, China's protection and subsidies, uh, uh, when again, compare advantages, without protection and subsidies, they cannot survive. But after 30, 40 years of dynamic economic growth, capital was accumulated. So the competitive advantage in China changes. Many older sectors in the past went against China's compare advantages. Now becomes China's compare advantages. Firm in those kind of sectors change from non-viable to become viable in open competitive market. When they become viable, then protection and subsidies become unnecessary, and so the government could remove them. And that was the policy that announced in the in our fourth premium of the 18-party Congress, so-called deepening the China's reform and allow the market to play the decisive role in resource allocation. And the connotation of that is that China will eliminate those kind of legacy of protection and subsidy from the dual check transition. And that China will be able to move to a well-functioning market economies. And I think that the need to 
pay attention to the structural difference and the indigeneity of structure would be very essential for us to make the modern economics relevant. As I mentioned, in the development economics in the past, you know, it all had good intention, but the result was poor because they did not recognize the indigeneity of the industrial structure. In the transition, again, the intention was good for establishing the well-functioning market economy, but it failed because it did not recognize the indigeneity of distortion. But modern economics, the main theory, the mainstream modern economics, since Adam Smith, all the theory came from the advanced country at the beginning England, and after the Second World War, most of the modern economic theory came from the US. And when they proposed a theory generated from the economic observation of the Alpine country, and explicitly or implicitly, they put the structure of the high-income country as their Implicit structure. What well, a theory is embedded, the economic, social, political structure of the Alamans country. And they always see things from those kind of lens. For example, if you read the modern growth theory, and Polomo just got Nobel Prize last year and talk about endogenous economic growth. And the endogenous economic growth, they emphasize very much the creation, the generation of new knowledge, right? But in a high-income country, if you want to have a technological innovation, you need to generate the new knowledge. Because high-income country, the technology is on the global technology frontier. And uh, by that, if you want to have new technology, new knowledge, you would have to generate, invent those kind of new knowledge. So the industrial growth theory, you know, try to you know, explore how to make that happen. But if you come to a developing country, their income level is low, that means their productivity level is low, right? And the technology they use are not the most advanced technology. They have a technology gap with the global frontier. And what we talk about when we say innovation only means in the next period of production, you use a better technology than you use now. And by that, a developing country can have the so-called late commercial advantages. They can you know, license, import, or imitate the mature technology from the advanced country as source of the new technology. But if you read industrial growth, that is not something that economists pay attention to, but it's very important for the developing country. And again, for example, we I think that finance is very popular among students. But if you read the finance, they discuss modern financial institution, modern financial arrangement, like stock market, 
you know, venture capital, big bank, corporate bonds, all those things. And those certainly are important for high-income country. High-income country, like industry, its own capital-intensive industry. So their investment and economic operation require huge capitals. And you need to have financial institutions which can allocate, which can mobilize large amount of capitals. And their technology are on the global frontier. So if they want to have you know, innovation, they would have to invent new technology. And the invention of new technologies require huge capital investment and also very risky. So they would have to have financial institutions which can mobilize huge amount of capitals and also has the ability that can spread the risk. And so stock market, venture capital, corporate bond, or big bank can serve those kind of function. But if you go to a developing country, 80%, 90% of production activities are carried out by small agricultural households or small, medium-sized enterprises in service or in manufacturing. And they use mature technologies. So the capital amount required for investment as well as for operation would be much smaller. And their risk would be much smaller than the firms in the other one country. Another kind of situation, the modern financial institution could not serve their financial needs. However, if you read the financial textbook, they all discuss that. And they treat those kind of local small financial institutions as traditional as backward. And very often, for example, when I was at the World Bank, and I see the recommendation of you know, financial sector reform proposed by the World Bank or by the IMF, in African country, with per GDP around 1,000 US dollars, with a population of less than 10 million. And the recommendation was for them to set up stock market, venture capital, big national banks. And uh, the recommendation was to eliminate those kind of traditional backward local small financial institution. And as a result, financial sector cannot serve the real economy. And so I think that we need to have some kind of revolution. Because as I mentioned, all the mainstream theory came from the high-income country. And causing the theory to be embedded in the economic, social, political, cultural structure of the high-income country. And we know that the validity of the theory always depends on the preconditions. The precondition including those kind of you know, explicit or implicit assumption of the structure. For example, I mentioned in the 1940s, 1990s, uh, in the 1940s, 1950s, the mainstream macroeconomics was Keynesianism. And it was replaced, it was replaced by Russian expectation. How come? 
because condition changes. Keynesianism emerged after the Great Depression. At that time, there was a lot of excess capacity and underemployment in the economy. And with that, the government fiscal stimulus or expansionary monetary policy can create more demand and generate more jobs and stimulate growth. But by the time of the 1960s, the economy basically came to some kind of equilibrium. And with that, the expansionary fiscal policy or monetary policy were not generating more demand, but high inflation. And as a result, you know, there was a revolution in macroeconomics to the Russian expectation. And if the condition in a high-income country changes, the theory would have to change. But we know the condition in the developing country, certainly in most cases, will not be the same as in the high-income country. And so it's very important for us to recognize the structural differences in the developed country and the developing country. And China's experiences you know, demonstrate that. <coughs> Basically, I did not see China or other developing country to follow mainstream theory to be successful. And a few successful economies, their policy in general were considered as wrong policy from the mainstream ideas. For example, the East Asian you know, Tigers in the 1950s, 1960s, when they adopted those kind of export-oriented strategy to support the development of small-scale traditional industries. They were considered as wrong strategies by the prevailing structuralism at that time. And in the 1980s, 1990s, when China adopted those kind of gradual piecemeal approach, was considered as wrong strategies. But China, Vietnam, Laos, and earlier on, Mauritius, they were successful. And they all adopted those kind of wrong strategies. So it's very important for us to recognize these kind of structural differences and uh, to make this uh, in a subject for our research. And so in recent years, I started to promote the new structural economics. And what I say new structural economics is that I wanted to apply the modern economic approach. That is neoclassical economic approach. To study the structure and the structural transformation in a country's you know, process of economic development. And when I try to apply this kind of modern economic approach to study structure and structural evolution, I should name this kind of study as structural economics. But because there was a structuralism behind, before me, and to distinguish that, they might refer this as a new structural economics, just, got, just like a new institutional economics. When Dr. Snows started to advocate the use of neoclassic neo approach to study institution and institutional evolution, he should have referred his research 
as institutional economics, but because there was an institutional school in the US at the turn of the 20th century. And to distinguish from institutional school, he refers that as new institutional economics. And to distinguish from the structuralism, so I refer my type of research as the new structural economics. And what the new structural economics because I wanted to study the determinants of structure and structural transformation. That means what? I treat economic structure as endogenous. Endogenous to what? I think mainly to the endowment structure. Country at a different stage of development, stage of development, their relative abundance of factor endowments, capital, labor, natural resources will be different. High income country, they all, you know, produce in mostly capital intensive industry, especially in the tradable sectors. It's because capital is relatively abundant and a labor force is relative skills and they have compared advantages in the capital intensive industry. And a low income country, in general, they are relatively abundant in labor force and their natural resources. And by that, certainly, they have competitive advantages in the labor intensive industry or in labor intensive industries. And uh, the production structure is determined by the endowment structure. And the economy scale and the risk profile or industry will be different. And by that, the infrastructure and institution that also need to be accommodated to their production structure. So that's the basic idea of the new structural economics. And to move from lower level productivity, lower productivity structure to higher productive structure, then those kind of studies is development economics. And to move from a structure with distortion to a structure without distortion is transitional economics. But the transitional economics in new structural economics is somewhat different from the transitional economics in the, in the mainstream economics. Because in the mainstream economics, the transition means you go to the institution framework as in the high income country. And basically that was, you know, the new institutional economic advocates. But for the new structural economics, the transition to the structure that are consistent with your level of development. So it's not necessarily the institution in a high income country. The institution for country at a different stage of development can be different. For example, the financial institution should be different. And there's many other institutions that should also reflect the scale economy, the risk profile of the stage of development. And then economic operation should also be different. I already mentioned, for example, innovation certainly is important. But for the advanced country, innovation means invention. And that is studied a lot by the industrial growth theory. But for the developing country, innovation can be imitation, importation, licensing. And a financial institution and its operation should also be different. I can go in on and on. Time comes train. I just give a little bit example. So from China's experiences, 
in the past 70 years. And uh, in the first stage, China did not have much context in the West, with the West. But the policy ideas were similar. And uh, the policy did not allow China to achieve its intended goal of making the country strong and the people rich. And in the second stage, the transition period, China had a lot of contact with the West. But luckily, China maintained its policy independent and adopt an approach, which was considered as a wrong approach, but retrospectively by the new framework of new structural economics. It happens to be the right approach and allow China to achieve stability and dynamic economics. And by bringing the structure into the mainstream economics, not only in the development transition and in economic operations, I think it's something like to transform the currently the mainstream ideas, the mainstream theory is a two-dimensional theory because the structure of the theory is the structure of the high-income country. Into three-dimensional theory, because country at a different level of development, they have different structures, so it should be three-dimensional. And by increasing one dimension into the theoretical you know, dialogue or theoretical exploration, I think it will give us a lot of new insights in almost every area of modern economics. And it's a gold mine for research. And not only a gold mine research, we will make the research in economics to allow people to do well and also doing good. As I mentioned, as a development economist, I did not see any developing country to follow the mainstream modern economics ideal to be successful. And a few successful economies, their policy in implementation were always considered as wrong policy from the mainstream ideas. But the success must be a reason. And if we bring this kind of structural dimension to the research, we will make our policy insights more relevant <laughs> as a policy guidance for us to improve our well-being. Thank you very much. So much, Professor Lin, for uh, a number of things, both a, a tour de force survey of the Chinese economy over the last 70 years, um, a call for revolution in the field of economics. We always like calls for revolution here at the Fairbank Center, um, and, a, and, a, uh, and a proposal for future directions, both in, in, the, in the field more broadly. Um, we have about half an hour for questions. Maybe I will, uh, I'll start uh, the questioning, and then we'll move uh, uh, directly to questions from, from the floor. Um, 
the uh, so I think that the revolution in uh, uh, the 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 revolution in theory that you're talking about is actually one that is very widespread in the social sciences. Right. Uh, in many of the social sciences, um, theory began assuming that the European or the Western experience was universal, um, and and so. Uh, area studies, regional specialists, China scholars yeah. sought to fit China into uh, 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 European theories. Uh, there was then a second stage where scholars recognized that China did not fit so well into these universal theories. And this, of course, challenged their universality. Um, there's a sense, I think, in many fields, including my own, which is history, that we need to move now to the third stage, whereby China becomes, or the experience of China becomes part of, a necessary part of any universal theory. That is to say that a universal theory that cannot account for the Chinese experience is not a universal theory. And I think that's very consonant with what you were saying just now. So the, the question I have then is, um, if the new structural econ economics takes root and becomes becomes the mainstream, what will be what will be the, the, the messages for the advanced economies? That is to say, what will be the what will be the, uh, the 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 because only only if there are lessons for the study of all economies will it be a universal theory. Okay, so maybe coming back to the most fundamental things, then it will be similar. For example, in the new structural economics, I still use the rational, you know, framework. Assume all the agents are rational. And if you see the mainstream economics, many also still assume all the agent is rational. Also, the demonstration of the rationality may constrain to, may subject to a lot of condition. Even behavior financial economics, you know, people still rational if under kind of information constraint and so on, they're still rational. Although they are not, you know, rational with full information, rational without friction, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the rational. So that is, you know, that's common. All the agents are rational, subject to the constraint they have. And then secondly, in terms of policy making, in the past, in the developing country, in general, you look at what the high-income country have, and what you do not have, and you advise the developing country to own what the high-income country have, well, you, you look into what the high-income country can do well, and the developing country cannot do well, and you advise the developing country to do like the high-income country. Well, you look at what are supposed to be important in high-income country, and assume them also to be important in the developing country. I think that's approach that, in general, universal, you know, in, in the intellectual communities. But the new structural economics just try to change the reference point. To look at what you have, and then based on what you have, what you can do well. Then, you know, the government work with the private sectors together to scale up what you can do well. And that's just also universal. For the developing country, they should do that. For the high-income country, they should do that. But the mainstream theory in the past already did that. They already said what the high-income country have, and what the high-income country, based on what they have, they can do well, and they create a condition to scale what can do, they can do well. But because they, in general, asked 
the developing country to do like the high-income country. Here that I only ask the developing country to look at what you have, and based on what you have, what you can do well. So in that principle, that's universal. But the context should be different. And that means because the structural difference make the context of action should be different. Thank you. I have a lot of questions, but I suspect that there are questions from the floor. So maybe we'll we'll move to those. We are um, recording this brought this uh, for for broadcast. So please wait uh, uh, till you have a microphone. And there are a lot of questions. I already see a whole bunch of hands. Please uh, keep your questions keep your questions brief. We'll start with Ian in the back. Uh, thank you, sir. So I want to follow up on the, uh, the the conversation you had with Professor Sony just a moment ago. You you make a claim for wanting to have a sort of new, more universalist theory. Now, but your critique earlier on the former theories were that they were too overly universal, that they were um, acontextual. So I'm wondering whether you see any limits to your new structural economic approach and where those limits might be. Should they be temporal or you know across different regions? Thank you. Well, good questions. And uh, as I'm, my critique to the old theory was they were a structure, where they took the structure of the high-income country as the only structure, and the map or other issue into the high-income structure. And uh, when they are different, were considered as distortion. And when I said that you need to make your theory context-specific, structure-specific, but you know, different country, they certainly have different culture, different political structure, and so on. And uh, for a theorist, you cannot understand all those differences. And so there's a temptation for people to try to you know, impose the experiences from one country to the other country. And, 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 and there's those kind of temptation. But I think that if you really see you know, the policy or the action need to be context specific, then you need to avoid that. I'm going to set a new condition on the conversation, I'm afraid, for a few minutes. I'd like to take questions only from students in the college, who are, of course, the, the uh, if, there are, if there are any. So if there's a, a student in the college who has a question, you get first, first dibs. And there's one right there. So you mentioned earlier that certain countries in the developing world attempted to follow the Washington Consensus unsuccessfully, but those countries would have implemented structures that would have been more similar to high-income countries, like perhaps certain kinds of stock structures. So from a new structuralist perspective, should we treat those countries more similar to high-income countries because of their structures, or more like developing countries because they're still developing? Well. When the Washington Consensus was proposed, at that time, they thought it one size fit all. No matter you are more advanced Eastern European country or your African country. And they were all recommended to have structural adjustment. Adjustment. And uh, you know, those countries, in general, they did not perform well. And if you look into the Eastern European country, the best performing country is Poland. But Poland did not really practice the structure because large steel enterprises in Poland were not privatized. They stay as 
state-owned. And so as a result, they maintain stability during the transition, and they also avoid the emerge of oligarch. And for example, if you privatize your power or telecommunications, and then they all turn into oligarch. And Poland avoids that. And those kind of power telecommunication, you know, they have natural monopoly. And it's very important to have a discipline to restrain them to use their monopoly position to capture large rent. And state ownership allow them to do that. And if you privatize them, they turn into you know, rich oligarch. And then they influence, they have a large influence on politics. And they become you know, captured. Yeah. And so I would say, even you know, Poland now is a high income country. It's per GDP rich about 15,000 US dollars. But compared to other Eastern European countries at a similar level stage of development, I think the economy in Poland performed well because they did not fully privatize their economy. So the question there? No? There. Thank you. And then, and then in the back. Um, so I have a question about neoliberalism. So um, what do you think is the most obvious theoretical flaw in neoliberalism that is reflected in its failure in explaining China's economic success? Um, well, you see the new structuralism and its explanation of the sexual Chinese transition in the past. I think it was pragmatism. As I mentioned, China adopted and visited. Yeah. China adopted dual check <laughs> approach. On the one hand, continue to provide necessary protection and subsidies to the all sectors and uh, in, uh, avoid the collapse, avoid that being captured by some oligarch. And at the same time, China liberalized the entry to the new sectors. And when they liberalized the entry to the new sectors, you know, if according to the Washington consensus, China should not facilitate for specific sectors. But Chinese government adopts certain kind of facilitation to the new sectors. For example, set up spatial economic zone or industrial parks and improve infrastructure in those parks instead of in the 1980s, the recommendation was if you want to improve infrastructure, improve infrastructure for the whole nation. But China only improved the infrastructure in those kind of enclaves because the resources available for the government at that time was limited and China needed to you know, prioritize the use of resources. At the same time, because of the government retained the protection and subsidies in the all sectors, Policy environment was, business environment was very poor for the whole nation. But the Chinese government liberalized the business environment in those kind of enclave, spatial economic zone or industrial parks. And so that allowed those kind of spatial economic or industrial parks to be you know, very efficient in supporting the conversion of industry of China's competitive advantages into China's competitiveness and that allowed them to grow very fast. And that is the reason why China can you know, achieve uh, 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 stability and dynamic economic growth. Certainly, you are going, you're going to hear a lot of different you know, interpretation about the success of China. And one 
one one argument was well, China moved to the market economy, and so that's what the reason why China was so successful. But I don't fully agree with that because if we say move to the market economy, then former Soviet Union and Eastern European country, they did that, you know, much more aggressively. They liberalized aviation, right? But they did not perform equally well. And some people will say, well, the success of China was because of the emphasis of the private sectors. And certainly private sectors in the new emerging sector play a very important role. But if privatization ownership reform was the main reason for the success, then again, Eastern European country and former Soviet Union should perform better because they already privatized all their uh, enterprises, but they did not perform equally well. So I think that my analysis seems to be more you know, uh, sophisticated than those kind of broad claim of marketization or broad claim of you know, ownership reform. We can take one more, two more, oh, lots of questions. Two more questions there in the red in the back there, and then in the red in the front, and then we'll open it up to the room. Thank you. Um, I think I agree with you about the kind of importance about the uh, protectionism or uh, subsidies uh, in China's uh, economic success. But I think recently China has become a champion for globalization, right? So yeah. do you think China is following the West actually uh, in terms of globalization or liberalization? And how do you understand China's global uh, kind of strategy or globalist orientation recently? Well, I think that Certainly, China benefit a lot from globalization because, you know, for the new sector which are consistent with China's compared advantages, then you know globalization would be very important for them to reach global markets, and uh, and, and and so that's one of the source of the dynamism in China. But here is that, you know, during the 1980s, 1990s, liberalization and globalization were the mainstream ideas. But you see many other countries, if they did not manage their transition, during the liberalization and globalization process, they faced the issue of denaturalization. They have a reverse structural transformation. You know, because if they liberalize everything without providing necessary protection and subsidy to the old sector to maintain stability, then those kind of old sector would collapse, many of them, if they are not related to the power or telecommunication, those kind of basic infrastructure, or they are not related to national defense sectors, then they will go bankrupt. So some part of the old sector bankrupt. And because in the 1980s, during the, you know, the mainstream idea of neoliberalism and argue against any kind of government, any kind of government for situation or specific sectors. So the new industry will not emerge. And as a result, some of the old industry collapse and new industry will not emerge. So they encounter some kind of deindustrialization. And uh, Professor Daniel Rochick wrote a lot about that. But China was able to maintain the older industries but at the same time supporting the new industry to emerge. And so industrialization, you know, come with the globalization and China, you know, became very competitive. But China will continue to advocate for the globalization 
and China will continue to liberalize because, as I, say, I said, protection and subsidies to all sectors was essential because at that time, they went against China's comparative advantages. But now most of them already be consistent with China's comparative advantages. And there were a few industries or sectors which are essential for the national security. But they were very small in terms of percentage of GDP. And by that, the protection and subsidy to them can come from direct fiscal transport, fiscal uh, supports. And so by that, we don't have to rely on the artificial repression of the credit and you know, financial repression and so on. So China can liberalize the economy and uh, fully embrace globalization and, and like the high income country. There, there is, of course, some debate about the precise scope of industries relevant to national defense. Well, and certainly. some disagreement between the US and China on that question. Well, yeah, you can always have some disagreement, but uh, disagreement. But we need to look into specific conflict, uh, specific contents of the intervention, and to understand, you know, whether they are desirable or not desirable. Yeah. Okay. Hello, Mr. Lin. Um, thank you so much for coming. My question uh, has to do with the 2008 financial crisis. I find it interesting that you took your post at the World Bank uh, as it was, um, I guess, starting. And so my question has to do with how China was able to avoid so many of the negative consequences and crises that struck so many Western advanced economies that China was able to avoid during that period. Thank you. Well, I think that related to financial sector liberalization, China did not fully liberalized the capital accounts. And so China was able to avoid the last inflow and outflow of capital. And that was the reason why China was able to maintain stabilities. And I mentioned about Poland. Actually, Poland also did not fully liberalize their capital account. And so they, Poland was much more stable in Eastern European country also. So those developing country who you know, fully subscribe, subscribe to the capital account liberalization in the 1980s, 1990s, in general, you know, it's very hard for them to defend themselves when you have a large capital inflow and outflow. All right, I'm happy to take more questions from this side of the room, but maybe I'll, 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 I'll throw it open. Um, maybe uh, Zyler to start. <laughs> Um, hi, Professor Lin, thank you so much for this. Um, your decades of work have been really important and thought-provoking. Um, I have two questions. I'll try to get through them super quickly. Um, so the first one has to do with the trajectory of the Chinese economy as you see it. I think a lot of people, including yourself, see the Chinese economy as becoming increasingly liberalized. Some of the sectors that were still under government protection in the 80s and 90s are increasingly being privatized and their contents listed stock markets, et cetera. So that's on one hand, um, I think a lot of people are seeing that as happening. On the other hand, I think there's a lot of critics, maybe especially from the left, like Zopai critics, who would um, see privatization as actually a process by which a lot of resources and profit-making companies are being increasingly concentrated into the hands of, I think, what you might call oligarchies, so the wealthy few um, that um, then create a kind of monopoly um, that um, 
they're not officially necessarily a part of the state, but they're not necessarily unaffiliated either. And I think people have expressed concerns about what that means for the trajectory of the Chinese economy. So I was wondering um, if you might be able to comment on that and if that uh, situation that some people are seeing is something that concerns you. Let me um, stop you. That's a, a great first question, okay. but maybe we'll stop you at one. <laughs> okay, so, um, well, China's economy, again, received a lot of attentions, and especially in the last seven or eight years, the deceleration in China, you know, became a concern about the sustainability of China's economy. And there were arguments about what was the main reason for the deceleration since the 2010. In 2010, the growth rate in China was 10.6%, and last year, 6.6%, and last quarter, 6%. And it was the first time uh, for China to have nine consecutive years of the deceleration in the past. You know, the average growth rate was 9.4%. And sometimes you have, you know, deceleration for two or three years, then the growth rate will bounce back. And this time it was, you know, continuously for nine years already. And then many people thought that deceleration was mainly due to internal structural problems. Uh, and my position is that China is a transition economy. Certainly, China has a lot of structural problems. However, the deceleration was mainly external and cyclical. And uh, the internal structural problem, you know, for example, some people argue China has uh, investment debt growth model, and which was not sustainable. China, you know, still owner prices play a very important role, and increasingly, still owned sectors. You know, its weight in the economy became bigger and it was not sustainable and all those kind of issues. And again, aging is another you know, argument. And, but I think those are not the main reason for the deceleration. Because other big countries like Russia, Brazil, and, 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 and India, they had exact same pattern of deceleration since 2010. And, uh, and the deceleration was even sharper than China. Not only those emerging market economy, you could also see like Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, they also had exactly the same pattern of decelerations. And they were high income, high performing economy. All those structural problems that refer to China, they did not have, but they had exactly the same pattern. And their deceleration was even sharper. So I think that the deceleration since 2010 in China was mainly external because the high-income country had now fully recovered from 2008 crisis. And their income increased slowly, their consumption increased slowly, and it had a depression effect on international trade. Because before 2008, international trade growth rate was twice or even more of the average, you know, the global growth rate. Now the global growth rate dropped, but trade growth rate was less than the global growth rate. And certainly that will have a repression effect on the growth. And secondly, in 2008, crisis hit, 
every country adopted certain counter-cyclical interventions, and those kind of projects have been completed. But the global economy has not fully recovered. As a result, private sector's intense, you know, had, has less incentive for investment and uh, causing investment growth rate to drop. If <clears throat> those are common to every economies, and that explains how come all the countries during the same period of time had the you know, deceleration. Then recently, there was a lot of concern about the change in Chinese policy. Refer to you know, the concentration of resources to the state-owned sectors and so on. But my argument, actually, that was not, that was not the intended goal of the government. It was some kind of unintended consequence of some structural reform in China. The structural reform the Chinese government proposed, one is to reduce excess capacity, one is to reduce excess stock, and the other one is to deleverage. And all those affect the private sectors more than the state-owned sectors. For example, the exit capacity in China was mainly in you know, cement and steel. And when Chinese government wanted to you know, reduce the excess capacity, the small scale, more, more you know, technological backward uh, uh, steel mill were closed down. And most of them were privately owned. And they were closed down not because their ownership, because they were small scale, less efficient, and used in you know, outdated technologies. And then when you close down, reduce the excess capacity in the steel or cement, the result was the prices, the upper prices triple or double. And downstream sectors, they will have to bear a larger cost. And downstream sectors mostly are dominated by the private sectors. So the private margin, profit margin in the private sector reduced because of that. And again, the, in our deleverage, one way to deleverage is to control the credit availability. And uh, the small and uh, the private sectors hurt more than the large steel owned sectors. And so from what I see, you know, I, I think that that Nicholas Ladi, his book, The State Strike Back, had a very large influence. The statistic that he's described was right, but the interpretation was different. He thought it was intended policy goal of the government to repress the private sectors and to support the state sectors. But from what I see, the government policy towards the private sectors did not change. And uh, the composition of the state-owned sectors and the private sectors changes is an uh, unintended, unintended policy consequence of the structural reform proposed by the Chinese government. That's right. <clears throat> you give a very persuasive account of how China, by not listening to the consensus of Western economists, was able to get very rapid growth. And you mentioned how Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Korea, South Korea followed. You did not mention Japan. No. Japan was the first country after World War II to be a poor country to grow very rapidly. True. Do you see that Japan followed the same path that you described of China of protecting its own structures and uh, opening only gradually to markets? Or do you have a different explanation for their growth? 
Well, IC Japan basically follow the similar models. After the Second World War, in the adjustment process, Japan did not adopt a therapy. They allowed a large state, a large conglomerate to exist, and 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 the change is very gradual advancing. And secondly, after the Second World War. If you see the development in Japan was also consistent with their competitive advantages. You know, started with labor-intensive industry in the 1950s, 1960s, and uh, following the Fayingi's pattern, and uh, you know, to you know, enter into the sector which U.S. lost competitive advantages and uh, developed those kind of labor-intensive industries, and. And by the time of the 1970s, they always read those art, and then they relocate those kind of more labor intensive industry to Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and, uh, and, and, and help them to you know, transform from agrarian economies to uh, modern industrialized economies. And by the time of the 1980s, you know, the waste rate in those East Asian tigers rose up and those kind of industry relocated to China. In my Marshall lecture 2007, I gave at the, I gave at the, 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 the Cambridge University. And my question was that the predominant ideas of development in a post-World War II were those kind of structuralism that you should develop large-scale modern industry in order to catch up. And now, how come the East Asian economies, they did not follow that strategies? And for Japan, they did not follow was because they did not have policy independence. Because at that time, their policy was shaped by the US. If they wanted to develop those kind of large-scale modern industry, it would compete directly with the U.S. industries. And under the U.S. influence, they could not do that. And so they can only allow their you know, industry, which was complementary to the U.S., to emerge. And Taiwan and Korea and Singapore, you know, for Taiwan and Singapore, Actually, their policy thinking was still influenced by the structuralism. They wanted to develop the large-scale modern industries. In Taiwan, in the 1950s, it was considered those kind of industry was necessary for Fangong Dalu. So they wanted to develop those kind of industries. And in Korea, in the 1970s, they have heavy industry, heavy, heavy chemical drives, as discussed by Professor Dwight Perkins. But they could not implement that. Because if you wanted to develop an industry which went against your competitive advantages, you would have to subsidize them, protect them. And whether, how long you can support those kind of industry? It's endogenous to two factors. How large natural resources you have. And secondly, how large your population size. If you have a rich natural resources, you can mobilize natural resources to subsidize those kind of you know, inefficient, you know, capital uh, competitive advantage defined sectors. 
or you have a large population size, and you can squeeze everyone a little bit and to subsidize those kind of inefficient sectors. And East Asian economies happen to, you know, lack of natural resources and a small population size. So even their policy thinking was influenced by the mainstream ideas, but they could not implement those kind of policy. And as a result, they developed their economy according to what I just described. What they have, a lot of labor force, what they can do well, labor intensive industries. And the government is very proactive, so they help those kind of industries grow. So I think that, you know, my Marshall lectures discuss that. Gentlemen, here's been very patient. Maybe you could take it. At the very end of your presentation, you mentioned that the new economic structure will be a gold mine yeah. for the future. Uh, I would like to have your opinion uh, of how gold, perhaps backing currency, would help improve the economic structure on a global basis. I'm under the impression that the AIIB is very much in favor of that, as well as the People's Bank of China. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think your, your question is that. So, well, so the, you're talking about the return to a gold standard, or? Yeah. Uh, gold mine or research, uh, not necessarily in advocate to use gold as the global reserve. And I think to use gold as a global reserve, I think people understand there's some limitation because the supply of the gold is limited. And uh, the growth rate of the gold availability will be smaller than the growth rate of global economy. And so if you use gold as the reserve currency, as the reserve, then you may face the problem of this deflation. <coughs> and that's the reason why the gold standard was given up. Yeah. And, and well, I have a book on this issue, you know, uh, uh, you know, I argue for some kind of paper gold in another book. Because you have a paper gold, that means you have a global currencies. And that is issued by global central bank. And uh, you know, determined by a group of experts. And this kind of paper gold can increase according to the need of the growth of the global economy. And to avoid the to avoid this kind of deflationary pressure. But to have a global reserve currency instead of to use national currency as a global reserve currency, certainly you need have you need to have those kind of global governance architecture. But ideally I can design that. But I don't know politically it's acceptable or not in the world. <laughs> We had some pretty good questions from this part of the room a moment ago. I'm going to swing back to the students for a minute if you have questions. I see one there. Um, I am actually a junior at the college. I was very interested in um, what do you think the differences, there are differences um, in the role of technological disruption between um, developing economies and developed economies and how to study them. Thank you. Um, and especially, particularly, um, 
I I remember uh, I think it, a Harvard uh, economics department professor Alexander Gershenkron proposed in the '60s first that. Um, you know, developing countries when they're catching up don't really follow particularly exactly the technological growth path that um, advanced economies followed. Um, it is actually one of their uh, edges. So I was wondering what do you think about that um, in your new structuralist approach? Thank you. Very good. For the first question, you know, because new technology and especially, you know, new generation of technology, when we talk about first, you know, Industrial revolution was third industrial revolution. Those kind of new technology tends to be disruptive. And uh, but you know, if you want to have further improvement or your productivity, then and to avoid the diminishing return to capital investment, you always need to have new technologies. And to have a new generation of technology certainly give you the you know room for large increase in the return to capital accumulation. But at the same time, it can be disruptive. And so you need to, you know, need to deal with the income distribution issue, and you also to need to retrain the worker in order to be able to adopt those kind of new technology, and especially in a high-income country. And for the developing country, in my talk, I use the term of late commercial advantages. I did not use the term advantage of backwardness. In our friend Gershon Grom proposed the ideas of the advantage of backwardness. At that time, the thinking was still structuralism. Because at that time, the advice to the developing country was to adopt the newest version of new technology. New is the version of technology in general is very capital intensive. Okay, and uh, Gershon Kron to say, for this kind of technologies, the developing country, you know, had some advantage because the developing country can adopt those kind of newest, newest technology immediately without, you know, the stock, those kind of old technologies. And so the relative cost for the developing country to adopt the newest technology will be lower than this advanced country because their opportunity cost was lower. And the idea at that time was still for the developing country to adopt the newest technologies. I had one paper you know, to discuss that you know, when they celebrate the 50th anniversary of the publication of his book. And you see that Country followed that idea. In, the, in general, they did not perform well. And as I argue, it was because if a developing country wanted to adopt their newest technologies, and they were so capital intensive. And as a result, it went against their comparative advantages. And uh, although it seemed to be opportunity cost adoption was lower, but the operational cost and the investment cost could be higher. And as a result, a developing country follows that approach, actually did not perform that well. And so I use the term, they commercial advantage. For the developing country, not necessarily they need to, to adopt the newest technology. They can adopt mature technologies. As long as those kind of technology is better than the technology you're using now. And, and so I use the term, they commercial advantages. 
if you're interested, I can send my paper to you and to discuss what's the difference between my ideas and uh, Gershon Kron's ideas. I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I, there are 30 or 40 hands up, and we have six minutes remaining. I'm going to just give the gentleman in the back the last question. Thank you very much, Professor Ling. Um, I just have a question. So um, you know that with the growing uh, importance of Chinese economy in a global platform, uh, how possible do you think that the Chinese yuan or the RMB can be a global currency? <laughs> And personally, I can't wait for that day to happen, but <laughs> <laughs> if it happens now, what kind of a benefit it'll bring to the global economy as a whole? Thank you very much. Well, yeah, certainly it's also a hot debated questions. You know, the, you see that the economic, economic side of the U.S. overtake UK's I think in, nine, in 1875, the economic size of the U.S. was already larger than the U.K. But the U.S. currency did not replace British pound to be the global reserve currency until the second world, end of the Second World War. So it took in a more than, uh, uh, more than 65 years, about 70 years, for the U.S. currency to replace the U.K.'s British pound, okay, and it was because you know if the country used the U.S. dollars as the reserve currency and also it's a unit of accounting, and uh, people used to that, and you want to replace that, there was a lot of transaction cost, so. In a normal situation, I would say even the Chinese economic size, based on you know purchasing power parity, that China exceeded the U.S. in 2014, and uh, I would expect you may have to take half a century to transit from the U.S. dollar is a reserve currency to the Chinese yen as a competing reserve currency. But it also not only depends on the growth of China, it also depends on what kind of policy that the U.S. used, right? When you say that U.K., you know, when the U.S. dollar replaced British pound only after the Second World War. But if there was no Second World War, maybe the British pound would continue to be the global reserve currency up to the 1960s or 1970s, how to say. But because of the world, and after the destruction of the world, and the UK was hurt a lot, and the global you know, new order was established, that opened the opportunity for the US to replace the, U, the, the British pound. So it also depends on how much mistakes Policy mistake the US <laughs> So possibly in 50 years, maybe longer without devastating global conflict. Right. <laughs> Let's hope we're patience uh, in this score. Uh, thank you so much for coming, all, uh, all of our guests. And President, thank you so much. Um, I'll just take a quick minute to thank again our, our, uh, our partners, the various student organizations. Uh, thanks for a splendid event, everyone.